any of us that talk about sports as I hesitate to call this my full-on profession, but certainly a lucrative hobby, if nothing else. <laughs> and certainly the professionals as well. There's something of a unspoken understanding, almost like a tacit admission, that I think needs to be spoken aloud a bit more frequently than it is. Anyone that's able to perform athletically at the professional level, or uh, even at the high end of the amateur level, if you're you know, maintaining amateur eligibility for the Olympics... Etc. Pick your athletic endeavor. Anyone that performs at the highest level of that has achieved a level of, for want of a better word, uh, you know, human greatness, athletic greatness, so to speak. And we just don't, I think, acknowledge enough how true that is. You know, how incredibly athletically gifted the worst NFL player is. I think it was Bill Murray who had a tweet uh, during the last Summer Olympic game, so this would have been uh, 2016, that he just wanted a one regular person to perform each event for context for how even, you know, the person who comes in dead last in the Olympics, how far superior that person is to the average human being in that particular field. You cannot say superior in any sense other than the athletic and uh, achievement, or the, the athletic endeavor being discussed. And we all kind of know it, and especially those of us that really kind of delve into this. We know it. We just don't say it all that often because it's understood, and because it goes without saying, uh, it gets a little bit understated, or kind of overlooked or forgotten. And I think it needs to be said on occasion. The people we watch perform athletics in a professional or, again, the highest level of amateur capacity have achieved a level of athletic greatness. It's important to remember that, especially when we talk about someone who fundamentally alters the game or is a predictor of the sport's future. We're not talking about someone who is great relative to you know, of the 7 billion people on the planet, the majority of them. We're talking about someone who is great and who excels amongst other people who have already demonstrated their ability to excel in a specific area. You know, you can look at Usain Bolt's records for how fast he runs, and they're, you know, a little bit mind-boggling when you, when you properly understand them. But then you look at, if you take him out of the equation, look at what the other people in any, you know, in any Olympic final, any world championship final, whatever. You know, remove him from the equation. Look what everyone else is doing. And look at how those numbers compare with even people in that same position, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, most of them would, you know, if you take, I don't know who took silver in, in the last Olympics... But if you take that person and drop them in, you know, three, four Olympics ago, what does their time do? And almost universally, it's better. Or at a bare minimum, you know, at the upper, upper echelon of competitive. So when we talk about, again, people who compete, who are great, it's not relative to you or me. I don't know who you are listening to this. I don't mean to offend you. If... You are one of those, you know, upper 1% of the 1%. That 
and perhaps this doesn't pertain to you, but I feel okay speaking to the general masses here. It's not relative to you or me. It's relative to people who are extraordinary in that capacity. And I just I think that's important as we delve into this discussion here to remember that we're not talking about someone relative to the average person. We're talking about them relative to the cream of the crop in their field. And it, it just needs to be said more often than it does, I think. And it's even more necessary when we talk about someone who is... I hesitate to say visionary or revolutionary, but those are the words that come to mind. Someone whose fighting game, if you look at it eight or nine years ago, you can see how pretty much only now, in the most recent iteration of the sport, what they were doing is being caught up to and emulated, to one degree or another. That's a very, very rare thing. And when you're talking about a fighter that's able to do that, we don't think too often about how many fighters have that kind of generational impact on the technical application of fighting. Because there are certainly some. If you look at boxing, you know, if we go in the Wayback Machine, Jim uh, Jim Corbett was the first heavyweight that actually boxed rather than just, you know, would slug it out with somebody. Use 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 the ring to his advantage, use his legs, move, jab... I, he also had the benefit of being, uh, you know, the heavyweight champion of the world as the rule set changed from the London Prize Ring to the Marquis of Queensbury, Marquis of Queensbury. I should know better than that. To the Marquis of Queensbury rules that are still in play, essentially. I think they've been tweaked here and there, but neither here nor there. And he, you know, gave you kind of a look at what a more modern heavyweight might look like. If if you look at you know the heavyweight boxing division. Uh, someone like Joe Lewis is a great predictor of what heavyweights would become 40, 50 years down the road. In MMA, because of how somewhat new it is, it's a bit more difficult to really pick out individuals whose technical decision-making had a colossal impact on the sport. When it comes to the subject of our discussion this evening, whenever you happen to be listening to this, He's one of the few that I've, that going back through his, you know, fight library, watching the tape on him, I was shocked at how far ahead of the eventual curve he was. Which, in and of itself, just as a technical feat, would be profoundly impressive. To compound that with returning from injuries, uh, for some of the long layoffs he's had, uh, at one point, having just two fights in a period of about 1,500 days, and in the second of those, reclaiming a title that he never actually lost. If I struggle on occasion to find the appropriate words when talking about former WEC and former UFC bantamweight champion Dominic Cruz, understand that it's some of what he has done in the context of MMA borders on the singular. It doesn't happen all that often, if at all. Uh, Hello, everyone. Thank you for taking the time. I'm Robert Winfrey, and given the lack of active MMA content in the world right now, I figured 
this would be a good time to bust out the old uh, deep dive subgenre here on the podcast and take a look at some specific fighters, look at their history, their technical maturation, the trajectory of their careers, and just kind of, you know, see how that... Uh, do that as an exercise to help keep myself busy. We're all being safe. I assume you are. So we're all maybe going a little bit stir-crazy. And this was a... I put out a request for people that know me, anyone you'd want, like to see me do this, and Dominic Cruz came up. And I found this to be a very interesting retrospective to do. So that's kind of where we're, we are here. I'm, I wanted to look at a significant chunk of his MMA career, but not it in totality. And look at his technical maturation as well as, you know, again, the career trajectory, maybe tell a little bit of the story, such as I can. And I hope you enjoy as we can, as we uh, dive into this one. Uh, to talk a little bit about, again, Dominic Cruz being so unique. When Dominic Cruz first kind of came to, I mean, his first real exposure on the MMA stage, to the extent that anyone would be paying attention to it, really. was when he fought Uriah Faber for the WEC featherweight title back in 2007. So some 13 years ago, give or take. Prior to that, uh, he was undefeated coming into this fight, and one of the, again, one of the things that's important to note about Dominic Cruz, he debuted at lightweight, uh, which is the 155-pound division. If we have any boxing fans listening who might be confused about the divisional shift... Lightweight in MMA is 155. And that's where he debuted. And when you think about some of the enormous human beings that populate that division relative to Cruz, he went undefeated through lightweight, eventually made his featherweight debut uh, just one fight before his WEC debut, was his uh, featherweight debut. When he fought Uriah Faber for the featherweight title... It's such an odd thing to look back on in retrospect how important that fight became for a lot of reasons. It spawned a long-running feud between himself and his team, to a slightly lesser extent, Alliance, against Dominic, or excuse me, against Uriah Faber and Team Alpha Male. And really, it's a rivalry between those parties that defined the bantamweight division for an enormous percentage of its uh, of its existence especially in the UFC capacity it's a really important rivalry to try and understand and the reality is it's also entirely was entirely foreseeable maybe not to the extent but that those two personalities would clash that way you couldn't find too many disparate people uh, than Dominic Cruz and Uriah Faber especially in 2007 Uriah Faber was at this point, excuse me, at that point in his career, on his, just his second uh, WEC featherweight title defense, because he'd won it at uh, WEC 19, but he was already a little bit of the promotional golden boy, uh, WEC being a promotion that featured the lighter weight classes. At this point in time, they had heavier ones as well. But that was kind of their point of differentiation from the UFC or other major MMA promotions was 
Most of them did not have a men's featherweight, a men's bantamweight, or a men's flyweight division. Uh, I don't think WEC ever had a men's flyweight division, but you know, featuring the lighter weight classes that did not really have an opportunity in the UFC. I mean, for a giant, for a significant portion of the UFC's existence, they didn't have a lightweight division. Just kind of crazy to think about when you consider how profoundly deep that division is and some of the you know great fighters and great fights that it's produced. But there was a period of years when the UFC had no lightweight divisions uh, proper. So WEC kind of catered to that crowd. It was also a bit more on the local side. of It was a little bit more regional. Not entirely regional, but more regional. To the, you know, Nevada, uh, Northern California kind of area. And Faber being, you know, a local person from Sacramento... Already a veteran at that point, uh, his fight with Dominic Cruz was his 19th professional fight. Uh, by contrast, it was Cruz's 10th, uh, almost twice as much experience. Again, you you have a, a promotional tool in Uriah Faber and a very winning fighter with a very laid-back attitude in a lot of respects, very competitive but very affable. By contrast, Dominic Cruz, you know, much young, uh, several years younger at this point, uh, a kid from a trailer park in Tucson, Arizona, with a chip on his shoulder, and those two personalities clashed in meaningful ways. Now, Faber would win that fight via guillotine in the first round, and that fight became, is really it's just another instance in the long history of combat sports of a young, promising fighter taking a step up against a more established champion. And, you know, by the time you're 20 fights into your career, give or take, I think veteran status is somewhat is somewhat applicable. And just not being ready and being overmatched by either the opponent, the circumstances, what have you. Just falling a little bit short on that night. But ultimately, in the case of Cruz, rebounding to... Finds you can still see even in that fight some of what Cruz likes to do. There's a little bit of the movement going on already. Uh, some of the punching, some of the reactive takedowns, but it's still very raw. And Cruz's style was, you know, somewhat born out of necessity. You know, debuting up at lightweight, uh, it certainly is beholden upon the smaller fighter in that case to develop some defensive responsibilities about being hit in the head. When you're faced with people of the again, the size disparity he was dealing with. And it just, you know, the moment, the opposition, his own personal skill level at that point in time, he just, it overmatched him. But this is a, a very, it's a common enough refrain in combat sports that you hear it a lot. What Cruz does to follow up that is a very interesting case study in the development of his personal style, as well as being a very interesting look at where MMA would wind up going. Now, there's a phrase that I think it's fallen out of style in MMA circles recently, but if you go back in time, you can find, you know, archived discussions or whatnot from, you know, seven, eight years ago. There was a term to describe a type of fighter in MMA that was not entirely accurate, but I'll get to that in a second. It described a fighter that came predominantly from a wrestling background, 
and along the ways they had gotten into mixed martial arts, had learned to throw some punches. We tended to refer to them as wrestle boxers. Now, that's not the most accurate descriptor in the world, but again, I'll get to that in a second. If you look at, and if you were to look at, you know, a list of prominent MMA fighters who would fit this category, wrestling background, learn to throw punches, not really big on kicks, not even terribly big on, you know, a lot of jujitsu transitions and stuff like that. You get a, there's a lot of people that this that uh, this description fits. Uh, you could argue Uriah Faber. Certainly as his career continued, he fit more and more into that category. Uh, Josh Koscheck, a fairly standard example of what became an MMA wrestle boxer. Rashad Evans, Gray Maynard, Danny Castillo, Chad Mendez. Uh, depending on what part of his career you're talking about, you could argue Tito. I think Tito Ortiz would probably fit into that category. I think Chuck Liddell liked... Depends on what portion of Liddell's career we're talking about as well. I mean, Liddell would be an interesting case study in and of himself. But it was a very kind of... You could see a lot of people that that would fit... That scripter fit for. Oh, Mike Brown. I believe I almost forgot Mike Brown. Sadly, underappreciated fighter. Now great coach, Mike Brown. And it led to a lot of fights, you know, kind of looking and feeling a bit the same. Well, you could see a lot of those fighters... And if you go back to that period of time, if you have fight pass and you want to fire stuff up, hop back to 2008, you know, 2009, 2007, and you can see a lot of those fighters, and there's a lot of the following sequence. They will throw an overhand right and use that motion to try and duck in on a double leg. You saw that a lot. A lot. And I mentioned that wrestle boxer in this case is not the most accurate of descriptors. And this, I think, dips a little bit into another topic that could be its own podcast, that being sort of the acrimony between MMA fans and boxing fans. Uh, which, again, will be might be its own thing at some later period in time. Uh, but suffice to say that there was not a lot of understanding of boxing that was taking place within the MMA community, be that at the casual level or in some cases even at the punditry level. So describing these people as wrestle boxers was able to convey the meaning that they wanted it to while being somewhat inaccurate. Anyone who knows anything about boxing will tell you boxing is not done with your fists. Punching and hitting, that's done with the hands. Boxing is done with the feet. And the majority of those fighters, their footwork wasn't really there. They didn't have very sophisticated, uh, even just punching skills. It, not to say they were, you know, the dirt worst, far from it. But if you were to compare them with, you know, boxers, uh, there was no comparison. Now, Dominic Cruz was one of the first people that took the boxing portion of wrestle boxer seriously. Cruz comes from a wrestling background himself. And he took the boxing portion of that discussion and that moniker, you know, seriously. Uh, he took a lot of inspiration for what he's doing from old box, from some boxing greats. Uh, I know he's mentioned Muhammad Ali in particular as being a bit of an inspiration for some of his footwork and some of his uh, feints with his upper body, some of the dips and shoulder bumps that he does. Uh, you can see Ali doing them at various points in his career to different effects. The sports are different. But as the inspiration for what he's doing, 
And when you see him fight, you know, someone like Charlie Valencia, this would be in June of 2008, you can see that really starting to take form. You can see the footwork is there, the upper body movement. It's not quite there. He still gets tagged a couple of times, but you can see the bare bones of it. His kicking and his punching have not yet blended all that fluidly. He has a lot of he has, still has a little bit of the strike and then wrestle mentality. It's not it's not blended properly yet, but you can see some of the disparate parts and how they might fit together. And when we're talking about Dominic Cruz's footwork in particular, uh, again, some of this is important to consider uh, the appropriate contemporary com- comparisons. So if you consider largely considered Frankie Edgar, former UFC lightweight champion, uh, I mean Frankie Edgar is a great of the sport. Frankie's coming out party, as such, to the you know the upper echelon to his his real eye-opening performance to the majority of the MMA fandom came in 2009 against Sean Shirk. I remember this fight; I was watching it at the time. Shirk, Frankie was able to make Sean Shirk look like his feet were in wet cement by just moving a little bit and changing a few angles. By you know, if he didn't like an angle, step back, step over, re-engage, and that those very, uh, very fundamental, very basic footwork and foot maneuver kind of drills made a former champion look like he was, again, moving in slow motion, fighting through you know, quicksand, fighting with cement shoes on. Now, that's 2009. If you look at Dominic Cruz, what he did in 2009 by comparison, again, watch his his fight with uh, Ian McCall. That would be his next fight, or the one with uh, Yvonne Lopez. Or, again, even the Valencia one in 2008. Feel free to fire up both of those fights, watch them, and just watch Edgar versus Cruz as far as their footwork goes. Edgar's footwork, while it completely undid Sean Shirk, doesn't is barely comparable with what Cruz is doing even then as a more unre- in its more unrefined form. Frankie Edgar's footwork carried him in large part, to a title, mostly because the rest of his contemporaries didn't have any. By contrast, again, down at bantamweight, around the same time period, Dominic Cruz is beginning to refine a series of patterns of movement and footwork that are only just now kind of fully being realized and integrated by the division generally. I mentioned the McCall fight. That's an interesting fight to kind of think of for historical purposes. Ian McCall, who would go on to fight Demetrius Johnson a couple of times and become a a premier flyweight for a period of time. And Dominic Cruz undoes him as he begins to blend his punching and kicking together. His fainting game has become much more sophisticated. Um, Two, things, two, two of the big things. One is his defense. If you watch the way he slips punches in this fight versus the Valencia fight, he is much better about getting behind his shoulder when he weaves or leans away instead of just leaning back. It's a small detail, but it makes a tremendous amount of difference to be behind your shoulder when you're doing that instead of you know, out in open space. He's also starting to get a better feel for the timing of fights as he 
off balances and disrupts McCall constantly. Uh, one of his tougher fights at this point in time, the next one is the Lopez fight, and it is a highlight of Cruz's adaptability. He's fighting a guy who has a good kickboxing background, and it's interesting to watch Lopez get a very quick read on some of what Cruz is doing and counter him. Uh, to Cruz's credit, he adapts, goes to his wrestling, and can, you know is able to beat him up on the ground. Uh, up until the third round, when there was an accidental illegal strike, the fight went to a technical decision. But for a guy who had been kind of building this striking repertoire and uh, reputation to be willing to rem- abandon that temporarily for a more winning strategy is another big thing. The number of fighters that will sort of obstinately stick to a singular game plan, even in the face of it not working, is quite high. Uh, After that fight, he fought, for the first time, Joseph Benavidez to sort of renew his rivalry with Team Alpha Male. Benavidez at the time was undefeated. And the two were battling for what would be a title shot. I believe this fight was the co-main event to an event where uh, Brian Bowles would upset Miguel Torres to become champion. And this is a... This is two fighters who are still not quite fully realized yet. Again, Benavidez was only, I believe this was his 10th fight, something like that. And there's a very high pace that takes place in this fight. You see here in this one, Cruz finally really kind of blending his striking with his wrestling. His ability to mix in those takedowns to punches, to scrambles, to strike. It it all flows a lot better. And he lands a a punch in this fight that he's used a bit, and it's fallen off just a hair lately, but he has a really good, like, pull-back, slip-counter-right. Um, not quite the same... Similar to the kind of Conor McGregor's famous left punch, where he baits you into overcommitting, kind of hops back, and then comes forward with the left. Something of a similar punch from Cruz. He baits you into committing, then slides back to his own right and throws a right to kind of clobber you with. And it's not the most devastating blow, but it scores consistently. Uh, After that, again, Cruz would go on to fight Brian Bowles for the uh, title, and it's a really, really good fight from Dominic Cruz. He's got a feel for the kind of timing and tempo he wants to use now, and he sort of undoes Bowles with it. He constantly finds feints that work. He's able to, again, blend the wrestling and the striking together much more fluidly. Uh, The big thing, I think, here is the full integration of low kicks into his game. While While a lot of his kicking game has been kind of slowly blending with his striking, he's, in this fight, he pair, he ends a lot of his combinations with powerful leg kicks. And, uh... Uh, Bowles would ultimately have to quit on the stool between rounds two and three due to a broken hand. I think he also had a foot injury. And Cruz becomes champion. His first title defense was a rematch with Joseph Benavidez. This is another really kind of interesting fight from Cruz. This This is the first time he faces kind of comprehensive resistance. Even in the first fight with Benavidez, he's a step ahead of him essentially every point of the way. You can see Benavidez is competitive, but he's playing catch-up. Here they are much more evenly matched. Uh, 
Benavidez very clearly in the first couple of rounds wants to play more of a counter game. He seems to have paid attention to what Lopez had some success with and tries to replicate that. And again, he does have some success. Uh, Cruz would adopt a slightly different methodology as that fight wore on. He prioritized winning rounds, which was an intelligent strategy decision, as it ultimately led to him winning the title, retaining his title uh, via split decision. I hadn't watched that fight in a long time when I rewatched it for this, and watching a fight for you know to, well breaking down exclusively what one fighter is doing is not a great way to score a fight. In fact, in some cases, it is. It, Ugh, just a bad idea, because you're focused so exclusively on one guy. Uh, I did score it for Cruz, rewatching it, but for whatever the value that has. Uh, the last WEC event, he fights Scott Jorgensen to become the UFC bantamweight champion. And Jorgensen, again, just overmatched basically everywhere. This That fight's fairly representative of sort of the older mentality of fighters and the old uh, technical style of the time running up against someone who just understands what's going on on a higher level and has a next order up skill set. His first fight in the UFC is a rematch with Uriah Faber. Faber having dropped down to bantamweight after a handful of failed attempts to regain the featherweight title after Mike Brown defeated him for it. And this is a fight that I think if you were to... I remember hearing live some people making noises about Faber potentially having won this fight. I think a lot of Cruz's game is more understood now. So looking back on it, what Faber's doing falls very much within the understood, kind of established, easily understandable games, uh, game plan. Uh, Faber, while a very, very great fighter in his own right, is also very... uh, I I hate to say this because it sounds demeaning, but Faber's game plan is very somewhat straightforward, and how he goes about implementing it is not terribly complicated. Versus an opponent who is not very nearly at the height of his sophistication, not quite all the way there, But if you watch that fight, this is the fight, I think, when you finally see the full realization of what Dominic Cruz is trying to do with his skill set. He is moving incredibly well. He is timing counters. His defensive wrestling is incredibly... is very much on point. Stopping Uriah Faber's takedowns is not an easy thing. He's got better head movement than in some of his previous fights. Uh, The big knock on him, I think, in this fight is, and it's a little bit to do with timing, he's off-balanced a few times by Uriah Faber, and it's just Faber's ability to kind of time his motion with punches. It's It's an issue that Cruz would somewhat correct, but it's also always going to be a problem with people using some of his style. Any fighter that breaks their stance that often is easier to off-balance. And it's one of the reasons in boxing you don't see people break the stance very often, because if you're off-balanced, that's considered a knockdown, and suddenly you're, you're behind a full point. 
it's less of a an individual knockdown. It does not score the same criteria in MMA that it does in boxing. So you see people play around a little bit more with breaking their stance. It's still a it still has risks and rewards attached to it. It is not a perfect strategy. And you see some of the risk here as again he gets off balance a couple of times. I wouldn't really call any of them full blown knockdowns in the in the MMA context of you know you get you know hurt and dropped or hit really really cleanly and dropped. But he does land on occasion as he's able to somewhat time what Cruz is trying to do with his footwork and his motion. But ultimately, Faber's again somewhat unidirectional approach to the fight becomes his undoing as Cruz continues to stay mobile, continues to chip away at him, and continues to win consistently win rounds. That's a big part of Cruz's game plan, I think, uh, his overall strategy. Dominic Cruz is not much of a finisher. I think in the totality of his WEC and UFC runs, he has two finishes. One of those was the Bulls fight, when which was injury-related on Bulls' part, and then in a fight we'll get to momentarily, the Takeya Mizugaki fight, where Mizugaki is just comically overmatched. And if you're not in a position to be a big finisher, be that with power, explosive submission attempts, what have you, the ability to intelligently and consistently win rounds is going to win you fights. I mean, Floyd Mayweather is not a big finisher. Uh, this would be Floyd Jr. Not a big finisher. But there's not too many people who win rounds as consistently as Floyd Mayweather does. Or did, I, I don't know. His return status being somewhat up in the air at the moment. So Cruz seems to content himself with dominantly winning round or you know with winning rounds and it ultimate again it ultimately is successful in this fight the next fight that he comes across is i'm so sad we never got a rematch of this fight uh his next fight would be against Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson now this was Johnson fighting up at bantamweight and this I think immediately after this fight, Demetrius, uh, the UFC would open the flyweight division, and you know, Johnson would go on to be to his you know fabulous, fabulous success in that weight class. Yeah, it was next that the UFC opened that division. He fought Ian McCall twice because of the draw, and there's some really interesting stuff that happens in this fight between Cruz and Johnson. There's some fascinating battles over foot position and angles that both men engage in. And Johnson finds some success with intelligently blitzing Cruz. Once Cruz kind of commits to uh, circling off on an angle, if Johnson can time that right, he will then blitz into the space and kind of drive Cruz backwards without him being able to plant and pivot. They both switch their stances a lot, so they're both constantly fighting over who's going to find a dominant angle to attack from. Now, ultimately, uh, Johnson comes up short, and I mean that both literally and figuratively. He loses the fight. Once Cruz gets a feel for the distance of this fight, uh, he's able to keep Johnson a little bit at the end of his reach or all the way in on a clinch. And Cruz's clinch game was just a little bit uh, better. His passing once they were on the mat was very, very good. 
and it's it's an it's another sh fight that will highlight some of Cruz's adaptability to what his opponent gives him. A you know a prolonged striking exchange with Demetrius Johnson didn't really favor him, so he started blending distances together, and again ultimately wins. It's a shame we never got that rematch because. A rematch between Dominic Cruz and Demetrius Johnson, when Johnson had become himself a fully realized fighter, would have been fascinating. At this point in Johnson's career, uh, he was... Let's see, this was his 16th professional fight. But I don't think he had really, kind of, again, fully come into his own as a fighter. I don't think that would happen until... Probably the aftermath of his first fight with John Dodson. Like, after that, uh, he really kind of finds himself as a fighter in terms of what he wants to do strategically, in terms of what he's going to do technically. That's the point at which he becomes fully uh, a fully realized fighter. And it's a shame we never got this rematch once they were both at that phase in their careers. Because here... Uh, Cruz is, in fact, a fully realized fighter, whereas Johnson is burgeoning on it, but hasn't quite quite got there just yet. Uh, now, after this fight is where things start to go a little bit off the rails for Cruz in some very odd way. I shouldn't say odd. In some unfortunate ways. Uh, he was supposed to fight uh, a trilogy fight with Uriah Faber. The two were famously coaches opposite each other on a season of The Ultimate Fighter when that was still a thing. And in the build-up to that fight, Cruz uh, tore his ACL. Uh, and and you know, that deeply unfortunate thing. Uh, Faber would go on to fight Henan Barrow, a top contender at the time for the interim title. Barrow would best Faber over the distance. Um... Cruz wound up having another ACL surgery on the same knee after uh, the... I believe he, he had it done via the... Uh, uh, I think they call it the cadaver method, where what they do is they take uh, the ACL tissue from a cadaver and then graft it onto your, in, onto your body. And his body rejected the... essentially an ACL transplant, I guess. So they had to do it again. He was out for another period of time. Uh, he was scheduled to have, an, have a unification bout with Hennen Barrow, who was still the interim champion. I believe Barrow had defended that particular title once at that point. I think he had fought Michael McDonald. Uh, and Eddie Wineland. I, yeah. Uh, it was after the Wineland fight. He's supposed to fight Faber again. Faber, the, excuse me, Cruz this time. Uh, tears his groin, is out for another period of time. Uh, Barrow is promoted to full champion as Cruz is finally stripped of the belt. Uh, in my estimation, the UFC took too long stripping Cruz of the title in this case. Uh, but, you know, that's neither here nor there in terms of his story. But he is finally officially stripped of the title. Uh, Brow would go on to defend that belt successfully against Uriah Faber, stopping him in the... Is that the first round? It was, yes. Uh, stopping him via strikes in the first round. Uh, Brow would then lose the belt to TJ Dillashaw in 
not only upset, but fairly spectacular fashion. And then would fail to reclaim it. And that's somewhat important because uh, Cruz and Dillashaw are about to intersect. <laughs> uh, Cruz's return from his prolonged hiatus of nearly three years, over a thousand days, uh, he fight he would fight fight Takeya Mizugaki in essentially a tune-up fight. This would be Cruz's only finish via stoppage under the UFC banner as he just blasted through him in the first round. Uh, in the wake of this, Cruz was then going to fight TJ Dillashaw again for the bantam for the bantamweight title. Unfortunately, Cruz tore the ACL in his other knee, and he was sidelined through all of 2015, and then eventually would return to face Dillashaw for the title on the in January of 16. Now, to talk about what comes next. It, again, it, it requires bits of context that are important. The first of which is some of the injuries that Cruz was dealing with going into this fight, which he didn't make a big deal of at the time, but has talked about. Uh, in fact, his experience, his appearance on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast, he details some of these issues. Uh, he, you know, uh, this was a very quick turnaround from his knee injury. He. Uh, suffers a rib injury in camp that uh, limits what kind of training he can do. He has developed at this point some really bad... Uh, oh, what is it? Uh, plantar fascia tendinitis. Which is... It's one of those things that if you've never heard of it, you might kind of go, you know, wait, what's, what's that? Why is it a big deal? If you know anyone with it, they will tell you what a potentially debilitating condition it can be. Uh, sorry, I, I apologize briefly there. So, I might, because I might have misread that. Um, tendonitis and plantar fasciitis uh, are slightly different conditions. Uh, and how, again, how you treat them is different, but they're not uncommon for athletes, especially those who wind up doing a lot of planting and pivoting on their feet. Um, Golfers, apparently, it's not uncommon. Uh, a lot of, you know, offensive linemen in football, American football, that is. Uh, some basketball players, that's one of the reasons you will see you know, people in the NFL, not just to avoid losing their shoes, but why they tape ev tape up their feet and their ankles. They're trying to help uh, you know, support the structures in place there. And, again, Cruz details some of this. It's, uh, it's a, again, a potentially debilitating condition. He mentions a few times that he couldn't even walk. He would have to, you know, crawl into a, a bathroom and then, you know, put, and he would soak his feet in warm water and, like, Epsom salts, I think is what he said, to try and kind of relieve the pain. And it, it's a, the fact that he's able to fight at all under those conditions, much less fight against the type of opponent that he was, is fairly remarkable, and this is the other bit of context that's important for understanding this. Uh, T.J. Dillashaw is a very, very dangerous and very interesting fighter in his own right. He was the first fighter from Team Alpha Male at the time to become a UFC champion when he scored one of the largest numerical upsets in UFC history in his first fight with Henan Barrao. 
Dillashaw was again the product not only of the Team Alpha Male system, where which you know uh, where his wrestling was kind of honed, but once the uh, that particular group brought in Dwayne Ludwig to be a striking instructor, a lot of them actually finally had you know a real striking instructor for the first time, and you, that period of time the a lot of those fighters from that camp start to see improved results based on that. None more so than Dillashaw who essentially revamps his style completely from a wrestler-first fighter to a very, very sophisticated striker, a man with a, probably the best double shift in the sport, if not the best, certainly one of the best. Uh, those of you unfamiliar with the double shift, uh, if you start in one stance, for the sake of the discussion, let's say orthodox, switch into southpaw in this case, step through swinging with your left, and then wind up back in orthodox. Um, if you look at the sequence that Jorge Masvidal knocked out Darren Till with, uh, that's a double switch from Masvidal. Switch, then switch through again while attacking. So a very good shifting striker, uh, a good kicker, very, very good kicker is Dillashaw. And he moved around Barrow. In fact, the way he undid Henan Barrow was uh, so bordered on the catastrophic for Barrow because it actually exposed a perpetual weakness in his game. Now, not everyone that subsequently fought him was able to exploit it in the same fashion, but Dillashaw's ability to kind of move into range, get Barrow to plant his feet and swing, or to cover up and then load up to swing, while Dillashaw then shifts, changes the angle, waits for that to, waits for that punch to miss, or intercepts it with a counter, and to just do that consistently uh, over the course of that fight before finishing him in both of those fights, Dillashaw finished Barrow. It's... It's a very, very sophisticated level of striking, and people very quickly began drawing parallels between his footwork and his movement and that of Dominic Cruz. It's easy to see why that comparison is made, especially when, uh, especially the more casual the understanding of what's going on. You know, the the more to a lay person. To an extent, I suppose I'm a layperson in this discussion, but you know, the more casual you get, the easier those comparisons become because, oh, they both have good footwork. They both use it in very different ways and for very different effects. And when those two clashed, it's important to understand not only the injuries that Cruz is overcoming, not only the layoff that Cruz is overcoming, again, this is just his second fight in around about 1,500 days, He's fighting an exceptional opponent who is a thoroughly modern mixed martial artist. One who has studied Cruz's game. One who has adapted to and around it. One who has integrated it into his own skill set. And is, uh, again, uh, Dillashaw would... I mean, I know his name's a little bit mud right now, given the... Uh, the EPO thing, but is a, an absolutely fantastic fighter. Uh, one you know, at the very upper echelon of the division. So when I mention that 
the fight between Dominic Cruz and TJ Dillashaw is profoundly remarkable on the part of Cruz, that's some of the context you have to understand. You have a champion in Dillashaw that people expected to win. He was the betting favorite. That seems to have taken the blueprint that Dominic Cruz laid out and adapted it to his skill set and arguably leveled it up. Uh, Dillashaw is a much more dangerous finisher than Dominic Cruz. That is, in his prime, is you know, not coming off a litany of injuries. And also, I, I believe that by this point, Dillashaw had split from Team Alpha Male in favor of being part of the Elevation Fight team with Dwayne Ludwig. But Dominic Cruz was public enemy number one in the Team Alpha Male gym when Dillashaw was coming up, so you know he's studied Cruz. In fact, I believe he might have mimicked Cruz to help someone train for him at one point or another. Wouldn't surprise me. And that's the totality of what Dominic Cruz is coming up against. A surging, dominant champion, a dangerous champion who's finished his last three fights, one of them again, Henan Barrow, who was undefeated for a giant period of time, almost ten years, I think, and he stopped him twice. And I know there's a there's an occasional bit of controversy that comes up around the scoring of Cruz versus Dillashaw, and I'm not going to comment on that here other than to say, uh, when I watched it live, I scored it for Cruz. And... On every subsequent viewing, I have scored it for Cruz when I have been watching it to score it. Uh, that said, what takes place in this fight is uh, absolutely remarkable. It is one of the highest levels, one of the best representations of high-level mixed martial arts you will ever see. It is two very, very cerebral, very mobile, very dangerous across all aspects of the across all areas of the sport fighters clashing trying to come both of them trying to come out on top and it's one of the few fights that I don't like discussing in tremendous detail because I constantly feel like I don't really know what I'm watching I have enough of an understanding to feel comfortable talking about it here to one degree or another. But it's taken several viewings and it is a it is a remarkable performance from Dominic Cruz to move the way he does to constantly make Dillashaw miss. Dillashaw a very accurate, very active striker in the lead up to this fight. He had one of the highest accuracies I think in the history of the division. He had one of the highest outputs in the division, and Cruz shuts the majority of that down. Cruz is very good about you know avoiding punches, landing his own, uh, making Dillashaw miss, and it took. I still don't know that this is the most accurate statement or you know how true it is, but rewatching this fight and a couple of Dillashaw's fights previous to this. A lot of Dillashaw's footwork seems to really come to life, and I don't know how much of it is predicated on this, 
when his opponent is less mobile than he is. The more flat his opponent is, be that against the fence because he's pressured them there or just in open space because they don't feel like moving for whatever reason, that's when what he does really comes to life. And you can probably count on one hand the number of times in this fight that Dominic Cruz is a stationary target. And Dillashaw really struggles to adapt to that reality. It's not until the fourth and fifth rounds that he has anything really approximating a consistent read on what he wants to do. That just constant footwork, constant peppering of the jab, uh, intermittent exchanges, and then Cruz is very, very good about getting in towards the pocket, firing a combination, and then exiting before you can return. He has a really good feel for the rhythm that you're going to try and use in a fight. And Dillashaw, again, it's not until the fourth and fifth rounds that he starts really kind of committing to leg kicks. One of the dangers of this kind of mobile style, and you saw this a little bit with uh, Demetrius Johnson as well, different footwork and for different purposes, but the same willingness to break your stance to relocate yourself in space, the the trailing leg, whichever leg is moving last, is vulnerable to being kicked. And that's where Dillashaw starts finding some success. He's able to kick Cruz in the leg as Cruz is trying to move away a few times. Uh, why he didn't do that sooner is anyone's guess. Maybe he wasn't especially well drilled for leg kicks. Maybe he was worried about being countered and taken down. Uh, maybe he was you know, thinking more about finishing and would rather use his kicks aimed at more targets of greater impact. He throws a lot of head kicks in this fight. But in that, in those last couple of rounds, he starts getting a feel for you know, potentially throwing those leg kicks. And unfortunately for Dillashaw, if we're talking about scoring the fight, it winds up just being too little too late. Uh, Cruz's ability to win rounds again rears its head here and I know it was a split decision uh, in all honesty I can't get my head around a 4-1 to one score for TJ Dillashaw which is what one of the judges had it I that just does I'm not sh- I can know, understand how it happened given the fallibility of judges the 10 point must system things of that nature but I've never seen that particular scorecard and it's because Dominic Cruz excels at winning rounds. And that might sound... I, and I don't I don't say that negatively at all. He's very good about scoring takedowns. Uh, about forcing scrambles that, can, that wind up to his advantage. He's very good about hitting and not getting hit. Even if he doesn't land cleanly, he's good about finding little openings. About visually winning a round and then minimizing whatever effect you're having. There's a moment in the fifth when TJ lands a very nearly flush head kick. And Cruz's response is simply to fire off a four-punch combination, not just, you know, to try and get back, to try and get the blow back from a purely emotional standpoint, but to try and sell to the people scoring the fight that what he just did did not matter. Or matters very little. And that's a very important component to winning rounds and winning fights. It's one of the reasons you see fighters kind of laugh and smile when they get hit flush. 
They're trying to sell the idea that it didn't matter. Cruz doesn't do it with theatrics. He does it with punches in this case, which is, all things considered, a better way to do it. And Cruz, again, ultimately reclaims a title that he never lost. It's, it, it remains an absolutely remarkable performance when taken in totality, the danger that uh, the champion represents, the injuries, the time off, just the infrequency of fights, even if you know we're not talking about the injuries, the injuries he dealt with coming into this fight, it's, again, it is a truly, truly remarkable performance. Even if you scored that fight for Dillashaw, I'm not, I'm not weighing in on Again, I, I've scored it for Cruz, but I understand it's a very, very difficult fight to score in a lot of ways. Even if you score that fight for Dillashaw, just the performance itself that Cruz is able to put forth in the face of all of that in the face of all of that adversity is absolutely remarkable. It is an absolutely sensational fight, and one that I, I. Uh, I still struggle to find words when talking about it. It is just that remarkable. And that leads into the last little bit that we're going to talk about here. Uh, Rather than, in a move that will be very familiar to people following the UFC today, rather than lining up Dominic Cruz with a top contender, they wind up scheduling a trilogy fight, rescheduling the trilogy fight with Uriah Faber for UFC 199. And it's an understandable decision on a purely business uh, standpoint, but when I say the rivalry between Cruz and Alpha Male defined this division for a long period of time, this is kind of what I'm talking about. The UFC has never really got a handle on how to promote some of these lighter weight classes. So they tend to lean on people with easily understandable skill sets, somewhat recognizable names, or the ability to build drama prior to the actual fight. And Cruz and Faber, I had forgotten how brutal the trash talk between those two was in the lead up to their third fight. Um, I mean, Dominic Cruz actually gets one of my favorite burns in all of MMA trash talk. Uh, I don't even think this was during one of their back and forths, but at one point during one of the highlight packages, they showed uh, this quote from Cruz to Faber. The best guy in the division, meaning himself, was out for four years, so why weren't you the champion? And it wasn't for lack of title opportunities. Again, Faber fought for the bantamweight belt twice during that time period. And it's a it's a really great burn because it kind of sits in your head and just gets better the more you think about it. Uh, this fight itself was not very competitive. Uriah Faber at this point in time, again, this is 2016, Faber's into his, you know, 30s. Uh, and not just into his 30s, but 
mid, kind of mid towards late thirties. And we're talking about a guy who's been fighting for a long time by this point. This was Faber's 42nd professional fight. Uh, and he'd been fighting since 2003. So 13 years, 40 fights. Uh, there's a lot of wear and tear. You know, there's there's mileage as well as years now starting to accumulate. And the resulting fight is... Uh, it is a essentially a showcase for Dominic Cruz. He m- continues to move well. He lands constantly. He off-balances Faber. Faber constantly, constantly gives up angles when they're on the feet. He gets dropped twice. It's uh, Faber is just comprehensively overmatched by Cruz in this in this particular fight, and uh, it's it's kind of a fitting place to close the discussion here. We started with Cruz's entry into the kind of mainstream, such as it was at the time, MMA consciousness when he debuted in the WEC against Faber. And to close with him gaining you know, the final victory in their trilogy over his rival is a pretty decent place to close. Now, lest you accuse me of trying to look, you know, trying to look away from the fact that Cruz lost the fight after this when he fought Cody Garbrandt, um, I again I feel loosely comfortable discussing bits and pieces of Cruz and Dillashaw, discussing how Cruz's you know, footwork kind of go, comes in spurts. He waits for TJ to really plant and commit before he moves aside. The way he times takedowns as he switches angles. The way he would utilize a shoulder bump and a shift in stance to elicit a reaction. I can under, I understand enough of that to feel okay talking about it. Though, with the full disclosure that my... Uh, my analysis is not the best, nor the only ones you should look up. When it comes to Cruz and Garbrandt, I don't really have a grasp on that. I've watched the fight a few times, and if we're talking about, again, some of the very, very broad strokes about what Garbrandt did that was so successful, I can mention a few of them, but I don't feel I have any real insight into that fight. And I'm I'm just not really comfortable talking about it in great detail. Not because it doesn't exist or because I wish to remember Cruz as some, you know, unfallible paragon of MMA perfection. That's not the case at all. But that fight is one that I I really don't have a good handle on. I will say this, given that Cruz again was the first person to take the boxing side of wrestle boxing seriously, the first person to really use footwork and movement of both the upper and lower body the way that he did. It's not really surprising to me that the person that finally was able to solve that puzzle, to undo that, was a guy in Cody Garbrandt that actually has a straight boxing background. Rather than someone coming from wrestling and trying to adapt into it, he's a he had a bit of an amateur wrestling background, but Garbrandt learned to box from his uncle, who was a very good amateur boxer. So a fighter who has that that at a, that at his core, 
it's a little bit easier to see where he was, why he might be able to find some of the holes and the timing and the habits of Dominic Cruz, where other fighters, just looking at it from a slightly different perspective, weren't quite able to see them the same way. So, again, it, Cruz is a fascinating case study, especially if you look back. You can look at, you know, stuff like the fights with Valencia and McCall and compare his footwork to his contemporaries even, even the high-level contemporaries in the UFC. And there's there's just no real comparison. He's so far ahead of the curve, it would take you know, nearly 10 years for the upper levels of the of the fight game to catch up to him. You know, now when you look at the top of the division, you see guys like Aljamain Sterling who have recently kind of got more of a handle on their footwork and their stance switching at distance. Uh, Peter Yawn coming in with his boxing background and his understanding of footwork and movement of the upper body and the ability to pair boxing into MMA the way he has yeah, of course, T.J. Dillashaw, a high-profile example of someone taking the inspiration from Cruz in terms of what he brought technically and then adapting it to his own style. I mean, uh, Demetrius Johnson, for, you know, the long-reigning flyweight champion, had some similarities. And it's just only now, really, at the, the upper level, kind of started to filter in that what this guy was doing eight years ago is probably one of the best ways to do it. You don't see that very often in this sport. And it it's a again, it's a somewhat remarkable thing to see someone that far ahead of the curve if you go back in time. If you rewatch their old fights, who's really got a handle on not just what's coming next in the next fight, but what's coming over the next months, years. And Dominic Cruz's style has had a long-reaching impact. And, again, he's just very, very far ahead of the curve as far as that goes. And I, I know the, at the moment, the, you know, the career, the story of Dominic Cruz's MMA career hasn't yet been closed to the best of my knowledge. I know... I know that they've been kind of talking about matching him up with different fighters at different points. He was briefly linked to a fight with Corey Sandhagen, another example of a guy who very clearly has a Dominic Cruz influence in his game. And I, I put it this way, I hope Dominic Cruz's competitive career isn't done yet. Uh, that said, he is an absolutely fantastic broadcast analyst. Uh, I know he's not everyone's cup of tea, but I find his insight profoundly useful as a analyst, as a fan. And it's just, it's important to note that this is a guy that forced the sport to evolve in a way that not a lot of people have. All right, uh, that's going to close us up here on this episode of the show. Thank you very much for listening. Again, I know we're all going a little bit stir-crazy. And I uh, I know we're all kind of lamenting the lack of MMA content and the global pandemic we're in the midst of. So hopefully this will give you guys something to listen to. Hopefully it's not a giant waste of everyone's time. 
Uh, feel free to leave your comments below, wherever you happen to find this. Uh, we're on all your platforms, so YouTube, iTunes, uh, sorry, Google Play, Google Podcasts, uh, Chrome Play, Chrome Podcasts, I don't know. They change the names on me all the time. Uh, Stitcher, Transistor, wherever you happen to find us. I don't really care. I care that you listen. The methodology, I care a great deal less about. Uh, the 411 Ground and Pound MMA show, MMA podcast proper, is a little bit, uh, I wouldn't say on hiatus, but it's a week-to-week thing now. I'm not. I'm never sure week-to-week if it's going to go up. Uh, last week there was an episode that just deals with the current state of the UFC, uh, what they've already canceled, what they're postponing, what they're planning, Dana White going off on the media, uh, the media's... I didn't get too far into the media's lack of response to Dana White essentially not answering the question. Uh, there will probably be a somewhat short one this Sunday as, well, John Jones seems to have gotten himself into hot water again. And, well, that, I think, bears a little bit of discussion, if nothing else. Uh, you can find me over on the. You can find me here on the 411 Podcasting Network, hosting that show, hosting stuff like this on intermittent occasion, depending on how the scheduling works out. Uh, so please follow us here. All your preferred podcasting platforms, we're on them. Follow this show. Follow the 411 on Wrestling with Larry Zonka, the 411 Interviews podcast with my regular partner in crime on the Ground and Pound show, Jeff Harris. He has interviews up right now with. Uh, Lance Archer was a few weeks ago. Gail Kim. I uh, had an interview with him recently. Chris Jericho, I think, was his most recent one. So follow those Follow those shows. You get some good stuff out of Jeff. His interviews are usually good. Uh, as for some of my other activities on the Radulich and Broadcasting Network this week, on Monday, Mark Radulich and I will be talking about The Gentleman. We'll be doing a modified Damn You Hollywood because movies aren't being released right now. <laughs> Theaters are closed. And Mark and I getting together to talk about movies is one of the things that helps keep him sane. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about that. I mean, it shouldn't downplay what it does for my mental health. It's a fun time. Tuesday on a TV party on the Rattlech and Broadcasting Network, Mark and I will be tackling the entire series of BoJack Horseman, the Netflix animated dramedy. I'm looking forward to that discussion quite a bit, actually. Uh, I really like that show. So you can find me there. And uh, again, next whether or not this is there's going to be a ground and pound, not next week, but the week after, still a little bit up in the air. We'll see if anything crazy happens between now and then. It might. The sport is fundamentally nuts. It's part of the reason we love it and part of the reason we hate it on occasion. I sometimes wonder if the institutional insanity in MMA is not part of the reason that the attrition rate for fandom is so high. I mean, that in the UFC schedule, but both topics for another time, I suppose. Thank you again very much for listening. I appreciate all of you. Stay safe out there. I always say it. I always mean it, even when there's not a global pandemic. It just is still very, very good advice. Stay safe out there, and please continue to be well, be safe, and behave.